Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Alexandra Ortolia-Baird, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to a historian who I'm sure needs no introduction, Professor Dan Edelstein of Stanford University, about his recent book on the spirit of rights published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I can say, uh, having just read the book, that it's a real delight to have you and a real pleasure to talk about um, the book. I'm very, very excited for this. So we we like to always start our interviews um, by just easing uh, guests in, so to speak, and just asking for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and and how your academic trajectory kind of led to the book um, as it stands. Yes, well, I, I think my academic trajectory um, would be it would be challenging to try and, and chart it using any uh, known mathematical equations, uh, since it doesn't really seem to have a very regular path. Um, my my background is actually in literature, so I have a PhD in French literature, um, and in fact, when I started my PhD, I thought I was going to be working on 20th century poetry, uh, but somehow I fell down both the chronological rabbit hole. Um, spending most of my graduate years working on the 19th century. Um, but then realizing as I was you know, doing stuff on the 19th century, I was at the time very interested in sort of the role of mythology as a sort of form of knowledge in the 19th century, just came to realize that everything always goes back to the French Revolution. Um, and and then sort of ended my graduate work on, on the French Revolution um, and so my dissertation is really this sort of unholy mess uh, that uh, you know look looks a bit like um, I, I don't know maybe the fall of Icarus could be uh, an appropriate metaphor. Um, luckily, I don't think anyone ever read it. Um, so that was sort of how I initially became interested in both in history and then more particularly in intellectual history, um, and then ended up writing my first book on um, on the terror. Uh, revolution and already was looking at questions around um, natural law. Um, but actually in that book, yeah, I was more interested in, you know, the, the book is called The Terror of Natural Right. Um, and I wasn't really looking at rights. Um, I was, you know, natural right is the sort of awkward English translation of what in, in French would be le droit naturel, like you would talk about le droit civil, so the sort of the body of civil law, the body of natural law. We don't really use um, right in that um, original sense um, very much in English. Um, but in fact, it does go back to this ambiguity in Latin um, and the two ways in which use um, is used. Um, if you go back, you know, in most Roman sources, use would um, similarly refer to sort of the body of laws um, around a certain topic. So there's use naturale, there's use um, civilis, so civil law, um, natural law, use uh, gentium, which you know would become law of the nations um, for us in English, um, and 
And then, of course, there's the famous um, shift or a bit of a controversy over when exactly this happens. Was it already used in Roman times or did this um, is this really a modern um, development where use also becomes um, the word for an individual right? So this is the debate over sort of this, the, the objective and subjective meanings of, of use. And we still you know, we still have that. Um, that very same ambiguity in French, you know, le droit civil, le droit naturel, but also mon droit uh, and uh, le, les, les droits de l'homme. Um, so droit is both operating in the sort of um, objective and subjective sense um, in, in French as well. And so the, you know, this is sort of a long-winded way of saying sort of how I, I had done all this work on the sort of body of, of natural law on the, on the natural law theorists um, and their the way in which they get appropriated during the French Revolution and especially during the terror. But I hadn't really looked that specifically at the question of rights, um, both in terms of how rights were treated by these earlier um, natural lawyers and then how they are how they play out during during the French Revolution. Um, and that's really what this um, this recent book is is about. And it's interesting that you say that everything comes back to the French Revolution because I think that's something that we'll come back to later in the interview. But um, before we do that, could you just outline perhaps what what were your main driving motivations um, behind the book? So you've kind of explained how you got there, but what was really really pushing you forwards in that argument? And and perhaps you could also just reflect um, or tell us a little bit about how you came to the title, which I'm sure for many intellectual historians um, is is incredibly satisfying. So um, it would be great to hear your your kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's such a modest title, you know, when you uh, riff off of Montesquieu and <laughs> the spirit of laws. Um, well, so I guess there were there were multiple. Um, so the book kind of as, as it as it um, it took a long time to write. Actually, um, I I thought this was going to be they a short book. They tend to. <laughs> they do tend to. Yeah. Although um, I, my second book was actually quite short, um, and uh, and it was a very satisfying experience. Actually, just sort of writing writing a book that's essentially just an, an extended essay. And I, and I thought, oh, maybe I could I could pull that off. Here as well, because there isn't actually really a, a good short monograph on the on the Declaration of the Rights of Man, um, and at least in English. There's like hundreds of them in French, but there wasn't really one in English. So I thought, oh, I could just try to do that. Um, but um, but yes, there were a number of factors that sort of led me um, down down this. Um, so one of them was um, a sort of a, a sense of that that there was a real gap in the um in the secondary literature on on the history of rights um and there was a gap between sort of the scholarship that had come out um in the you know in the 70s and really all the way up until the bicentennial of the french revolution on the one hand and then the more recent books really starting with lynn hunt's um, book on um, inventing human rights and then samuel moyne's um, book on the last utopia and the gap was that all of the earlier scholarship um, really tended to focus on the early modern period and even the late medieval period so um, this this is sort of the the work of people like Michel Villet in France but also Leo Strauss um, later uh, 
Richard Tuck, and um, and then even going all the way up to people like um, Brian Tierney, who's actually one of my favorite um, historians of um, of natural rights. Um, but they're all looking at you know the, the sort of the action for these for these um, scholars takes place between roughly you know the 12th century and maybe they'll go up to the 17th century but really the die is cast pretty early for almost all of these um, all of these scholars and then conversely with um, with Lynn Hunt and Sam Moyne um, it's like nothing happens before 1700 at the earliest and of course you know Sam Sam's um, famous sort of argument that really nothing happens before 1970, uh, which I think he's he's since uh, you know, revised copiously. Um, but this had this effect of sort of suggesting that you know the incredible amount of intellectual effort that went into theorizing natural rights in the sort of natural law tradition, which had been the focus of all this earlier scholarship. Just kind of gets ignored by the more recent scholarship. I mean, I think that um, you know, again, Lynn Hunt has sort of, I think, come around a little bit to uh, to to mollify her earlier position. But in inventing human rights, she sort of, you know, fairly casually says, "Yeah, well, all of you know, natural rights had too many meanings. We can't really you know, look to this history in order to understand the emergence of human rights in the 18th century because it's just too messy." Um, Interestingly, that's kind of an 18th century position. You do find um, a lot of uh, philosophers, you know, waving their hands at Pufendorf and Grotius and say, "Ah, you know, quel fatra!" You know, what what a bunch of confusing uh, claims that we find there. Um, but to me, this just felt like that that couldn't be the case, right? I guess I'm also I think there you know there are splitters and lumpers in intellectual history, and I've I've come to realize that I'm I'm probably more of a lumper than a splitter. Um, and so it just seemed that there had to be a, there had to be some continuity here. It just didn't make sense that um, people were going to be using basically the same terms, using the same arguments, and not there not being any connection with um, the the philosophers who came before. Um, so that's really what the book tries to do: is try to stitch together the the early modern and the modern, um, and. And of course, you know that's the sort of effort when you when you try to do something like that, you're you're kind of bound to do each part. <laughs> you're bound to fail on on each side. Uh, but but hopefully there is uh, at least some you know establishing some bond between the, these two parts. And you, you say something really wonderful. It's it's it, it really struck me as just a fantastic phrase that you know I really um I will uh, t you know tell to students which you say downplaying historical novelty does not downplay historical importance. And I think that that really lends itself to this kind of long term view, this this lumper rather than um, splitter view. But uh, what you've said leads very um, nicely into just something that I wanted to ask you about: who you see. As the audience or audiences, plural, um, uh, of the book, because you know, rights naturally crosses over fields. You know, it's uh, it's history, of course, but you know, there's also law and political theory. Um, you know, did you have a, a particular audience in mind, or do you see this being a book that really transcends those? Um, so, I mean, I guess every every author hopes that they are writing for the largest possible audience. Um, I mean, I think that you're you're right that. It, it's a book that people from very different fields may well stumble upon just because if, you know, if you're doing research on rights, um, then 
you know, you could be coming from political theory, you could be coming from law, from history. Um, it's interesting. I feel that, you know, I'm more and more in dialogue with um, people who actually are in sort of the history of political thought world, which in in the UK, you still find a lot of those um, scholars and history departments. But in the US, more and more, I mean, I, the people I'm in dialogue with actually are in political science departments, because that's where um, political theory and the history of political thought um, live. Uh, and this says something, I think, more about our fields than really about anything that I know I'm doing. It's more that, uh, you know, it, it, modern intellectual history has been staging a real comeback, but early modern intellectual history seems to be having a slightly harder time in, in the history fields. And, and this is a really big broad claim and and there's lots of exceptions but um i think that when you find early modern intellectual historians um in history departments today in the u.s they're probably more likely to be doing sort of history of science or um cultural history there's of course the whole sort of anthony grafton um school which is the 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 history of of erudition which is still pretty hot um but there's it seems to me and you know maybe this is just my um my um, misguided subjective view but it does seem like there are fewer intellectual historians of political thought um in history departments these days. Um, so I, just if I just think like the people I tend to be reading and citing, well, most of them tend to be political uh, theorists um, doing history of political thought. And it's very different in the UK, of course, you know, with obviously the, the whole um, you know, the dominance of the, of the Cambridge School, but even at, at, at Oxford, at um, Queen Mary, I mean, there's all of these sort of intellectual and political historians are very much ensconced in history. Um, and and so it does sometimes feel like you know, this this matters because you know a lot of historians will sort of be pushing back on on like just the kinds of claims that intellectual historians will make. So like for instance, I have a chapter on on the theory of abolitionism. So like and this gets us you know back to Montesquieu. Um, how is it that these developments in rights contributed to abolitionism? But I'm not actually talking about the phenomenon of abolitionism, talking about ideas around abolition, sort of what fueled the arguments for abolitionists. And and more and more, I sense with um, historians, especially in the US, they'll sort of want me to say more about, well, you know, who were the people who were using these ideas? How did they actually play out in, in the process of, you know, leading up to abolition? Um, and, you know, those are great questions and fascinating questions. Um, but it seems to me that you can you can sort of look at those questions or you can also just sort of study how these ideas came about and that you don't necessarily that it's sort of not um, problematic to only do intellectual history. I guess I'm basically you know, doing an ap- apologia you know, pro disciplina sua. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of pushback I find um, still today um, um, from other historians doing early modern intellectual history of political thought. 
I like to think that some of those issues stem from the fact that intellectual history is so porous and it can extend so nicely and so um, with such kind of uh, grace into those other disciplines and fields. At the, <laughs> I try to always put a positive spin on it because it does sometimes feel as an intellectual historian like it's this uphill battle of trying to convince people of why it's still um, not philosophy or not political theory um, right. and so forth. Mm-hmm. But um, before we really dive into into the into the book and, and go through some of the chapters, could you just briefly, for listeners, um, outline what the general structure is and and how it progresses? Um, across the sections? Sure, I, I can try at least. Um, so I think, you know, what I realized as I was writing the book is that we need a new way to write the history of rights. Um, the, the, so earlier in our conversation, I was referring to the sort of, you know, older generation of rights scholars, you know, going back to the 60s and 70s, Vide, Strauss, et cetera. And, and and all the way up to Tuck, really, um, the, their story was precisely this sort of shift from the objective understanding of natural law, jus naturale, in the sense of there is a body of laws that are given to us um, from nature, and the shift to the subjective understanding of rights as a sort of an individual power. Um, and And that's sort of their story. Um, you know, for for Ville and Strauss, it's a it's a very negative story. The the move from um, objective law to individual law is seen as this kind of fall, and and it's a very anti modern story. And then you know, Tuck's first book, um, Natural Right Theories, sort of takes that same narrative but just flips it on its head. And says, oh, this is great. You know, this is kind of becomes a triumphalist um, narrative of you know the the growth of rights as as a positive thing, and and this is one of the reasons why I was saying I like Brian Tierney's work so much. I mean, Tierney really just s- savages that narrative and says, you know, it's it's nonsense because um, essentially, you know, understanding jus naturale as a body of laws and understanding a you know assume use my or his use as an individual power, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, if there's a natural law that says I shall not take your stuff, then you know, using the the language of legal philosophers, you know, correlatively, you have a right not to have your stuff taken. Um, so you can't really parse these two um, notions apart. And furthermore, um, they just cohabitate. I mean, so even if you look at a, a, a linguistic usage, you know. Think about the, the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, has all the famous lines about unalienable rights, but it's in the name of you know, the laws of nature and nature's God. So um, you know, even, even a Jefferson is still sort of drawing these conclusions about natural rights from certain premises based on you know, the existence of natural law as a you know, theologically grounded set of norms. So you just, it just doesn't work as, as, a, as an account of what's happening during you know, the 500 years between um, you know, the sort of Franciscan de- debates, which are often looked to as you know, one of the first moments where use really becomes sort of weaponized as a subjective individual understanding of a right, you know, all the way up to the French Revolution and, and beyond all the way up to the Universal Declaration. Um, so, like, so what's happening there? What, what is? How can we tell the story of of what's been 
of all the changes, you know, between um, Occam and Hobbes and um, you know, the, the Declaration des Droits de l'Homme. Um, and so the more I sort of sat on that question, um, just finally dawned on me. It was actually kind of a funny story um, about how this um, how this happened. Maybe I'll maybe I'll digress since you encourage digression. We love digression. <laughs> it's it's truly the best. So I was at the um, at Princeton's uh, University Center for Human Values for for the year, um, which is really it was a wonderful experience. Um, and, and I got to be around all of these, you know, political philosophers, um, political theorists, historians. I mean, it was interesting because most of my friends at Princeton are in, are in history and in, um, and in the French department. But the, the center is really more in the um, in the realm of political philosophy. And I was um, I was giving a presentation and I just sort of threw out fairly casually that um you know, in, in Locke's second treatise, yes, you know, we start out in the state of nature with all these rights, but we have to give them up to society um, once we move into um, a civil, you know, political body. And um, and Annie Stilt, wonderful um, political philosopher at, at Princeton, sort of said, no, we don't. And I thought I was just saying something totally obvious. Because for me, it is obvious, like in, in chapter nine of the second treatise, you know, Locke literally uses that language. Um, and and Annie was just like, so for, for, from her perspective, I just said something totally idiotic. <laughs> and, you know, I think since we we sort of, we still have a bit of a debate over what exactly we give up. Um, but, uh, but it made me realize that this seemed to be really the interesting question of not so much do we have rights is there a concept of universal human rights that we can identify? Because frankly, you know, if you scratch the surface enough and if you sort of um, squint enough, you can pretty much see that concept um, definitely in the, in the late Middle Ages. But, you know, arguably it is there even in antiquity as well. Um, and so that didn't really seem like what's really happening, like what's at stakes during the the long period of before the French Revolution and you know all of the arguments that are going on in this field for you know for hundreds of years. They're not debating whether or not we have you know we have individual human rights, but what they're debating is what happens to these rights once we enter into society. And that's really what the book's about. Um, and and the way that this now allowed me to sort of propose a different way of telling the history of human rights was to show that there are really sort of three main options of what happens to human rights during uh, once we leave the state of nature or once we find ourselves in a political society. And and interestingly here. As well, and I won't I won't go into this discussion fully. I'll just sort of allude to it. Maybe we can talk about it later. Um, I think that a lot of this is conditioned um, by Roman law and by the rediscovery of the the corpus um, uh, civilis in um, you know the late eleventh um, century. Um, but we can go into that later. But essentially, there are sort of these three positions. One of which is 
well, you just retain your rights. So it doesn't really matter whether you're in a sort of state of nature or in civil society, rights are rights. And, and that will kind of ultimately become the standard view with, you know, what, following the age of revolutions, um, you know, that's our assumption, like a human right, you've got it. It doesn't, doesn't really, you don't need to define um, the, the status that you're in, whether you're in a state of nature or not. Um, but that actually was kind of the minority view for much of the early modern period. Um, and the other two views were, um, on the one hand, what I end up seeing with Locke is that you have a, a sort of transfer narrative that, yes, you have these rights, but when you enter into political society, you have to transfer them to government. And and essentially, you don't really you don't enjoy their use anymore. So you're you're not entirely stripped of them. You have not, you know, alienated your rights. But it's like when you deposit them into a trust, which is the, the fiduciary language that that Locke uses. Um, you know, you don't automatic. You can't just reclaim them under any circumstances. There's a very specific. Um, way in which you can regain your rights, which for Locke is if you know your government um, enters into a state of war with you, then you can regain them. But the rest of the time you don't have them. Um, and actually, I mean, this is, I think, perhaps the most controversial argument in the book, um, given the you know, dominant libertarian reading of, of Locke. Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, you really even retain your property rights, your natural property rights in the in civil society for Locke, because you've had to you've transferred those to the government, and in exchange, the government gives you um, positive property rights, a deed to your land, um, which you can then trade, you can sell, you can buy up others. Um, but you know all of the sort of Lockean stuff on labor and you know, how how we get property in the first place. You know, it kind of becomes irrelevant once you enter into a political society where there is no more you know, virgin land for you to develop. So it might might still apply in colonies uh, where apparently there's nobody, um, but it doesn't really apply anymore, say, to, to England. Um, so that's the transfer argument. And then there's the more hardcore um, argument, which um, will become sort of favored by the you know the absolutists are those who are prefer a, a form or defend a form of authoritarian government which is yeah well, we all have these rights but but then you know if we really want to have a working society you just have to give them up completely um, and that's you know more or less the hobbesian argument that you just have to alienate these rights um, the government takes them over now hobbes does have just sort of splice this and say, well, you don't give up your right to self-preservation and, and sort of, and you can still try to escape prison. And there's a couple, there's a few minor um, differences that he allows. Um, but, but the general model here is um, that you just completely have to um, hand over your rights um, and, and you essentially become alienated from them. And this, you know, Grotius will put, push forward this model um, and, and others will as well. So the story then becomes sort of this competition, this rivalry between these three different models. And, and the sort of real interesting question I found is, well, if the, the preservation model is um, so, is seen as kind of crazy really, but, and it's only the most radical 
thinkers who pushed this forward in the you know the the radical Huguenots, the Levelers, um, but sort of none of the really dominant philosophers of natural law take this very seriously until the late 18th century. Well, why is it? Why is it that that's the the model, uh, the regime, as I as I describe it in the book, that will ultimately dominate um, in the late 18th century and more or less continues to be the way that we think about rights today? And so this um, this format is really how how the book begins. Um, so you you have the first chapter, which is called "How to Think About Rights in Early Modern Europe," and that's when you present what you call um, these regimes of rights, which is um, perhaps something we can talk about later, but a very very interesting um, way of thinking about them. And as you say, you have the preservation regime, the transfer regime, and the abridgment um, regime. And I very much enjoyed, you know, as an intellectual exercise, trying to fit. Um, historical thinkers within those um, those regimes, but something that you also um, and it's again slightly tangential here that you bring up in this this first chapter is um, regarding methodology and and I say this just because uh, as someone who's very interested um, in digital humanities, um, you you talk a lot about how um, we can write and research intellectual history in the digital age. And you outline very clearly the limitations and the caveats of using tools like uh, Google Ngrams, like databases like Ebo and Gallica. But you make what I think is a very, very strong case for how these tools could um, and should be integrated and used to bolster the intellectual history that we're writing, provided, however, that we're very cognizant of their biases and limits. So could you perhaps sketch out for those um, listening who are perhaps less familiar with these issues? Um, you know, what some of the problems are in writing an intellectual history, which relies so heavily on uh, digital technologies and digital tools, but also the advantages that really come from that. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's a, it's a great question. I'm glad that you, uh, you know, brought this up. I mean, I think that, you know, we're, we're all a little bit like um, Molière's uh, Monsieur Jourdain, who discovers that um, he knows how to um, speak in prose. Um, you know, I think these days, just about everybody is making wide use of digital technologies. And it could be as simple as you know, using Google Books, let alone Google Books engrams, um, or downloading PDFs from, um, from Gallica. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, you know, when I started doing digital humanities back in, um, all the way back in 2007, um, it, it, it felt still like it was slightly a separate field. And, and I think that um, there's still people today who are really identified primarily as digital humanists. Um, but a lot of the stuff that was sort of more unusual, you know, even just 12 years ago, has now sort of gone and become very mainstream. Um, so things like word frequencies that you can get um, by using uh, Google Ngrams or or something like the the wonderful Frantext um, database run out of the University of Chicago. Um, these now you know, are pretty you know, run of the mill for for a lot of um, intellectual historians, literary scholars, um, etc. Now, and, and so I think I, I'm sort of an advocate of you know let's let's go for the low hanging fruit you know I spent many years involved in in these sort of very complicated um, DH projects 
that required big grants and you know hiring computer programmers and and it was really exciting but um it left me feeling that you know there's a so much work that has to go into doing these sort of more cutting edge dh projects and and when you have to you know clean up your data and and acquire your data i mean you spend years and years and you get you know you can get interesting results but um you do have to kind of question the um the amount of effort that goes into getting those results and and with you know it seems to me that we're still at a moment um in sort of the history of digit digitalization where there's just so many low-hanging fruit that we can that we can acquire um, easily without uh, and just using sort of off-the-shelf tools um, so that's my sort of general outlook um, especially as an intellectual historian um, and you know I don't mean to say that there's not fascinating stuff you can do that is a little more sophisticated like with topic modeling or or mapping even um, but um, but you know it's a lot it takes a lot of work so it's just a question of like where, where do you want to invest your your time and energy um, now of course there are caveats um, and the caveats are that you know not everything has been digitized and so the corpus that you explore when you're using databases like ebo echo gallica even google books um, are do have biases i mean sometimes those are the very biases that um that libraries already have um but they could also be um i mean to use the the, the great um language of the uh, famous um information theorist donald rumsfeld you know there are our known unknowns and our unknown unknowns um and you know some of the known unknowns are like well we know um, what you know what tends to get collected we know that um, certain voices tend to get left out uh, but then there are unknown unknowns like well like often i know there's some databases where it's really unclear what the principle of collection was um, and so like with google books frankly i think it's a little bit the luck of the draw um, but it is a big draw um, so you just um, you have to be very wary that you know you can't use everything uh, or that you can't sort of I think reach hard conclusions often from um, from any sort of statistical analysis of a of a database of old texts. Then there's also other challenges, like there's the whole so-called dirty OCR problem, um, which refers to the fact that you know most collections um, will. So the process for establishing, say, Echo is that you, um, if you're lucky, you scan the original books. I think that Echo, they might still have quite a few, um, the scanning process might have been on the basis of microfilms, I believe, um, but I'm not entirely sure um, about that. It was certainly the case for a lot of the texts on Gallica originally. Um, but so already you're, you, you can be starting with a pretty low quality image of the book. Um, but most of the time, um, the the text, so if it's been um, digitized so that you can do word searches, um, that ha happens through a process called optical character recognition or OCR, um, which is very good these days if you take a, um, you know, a contemporary book, you scan it, you run it through an OCR, you're, you're likely to get um, you know, 99.5% you know, accuracy if, if you've done a really good job scanning it. 
Um, but for 18th century or let alone 17th or anything earlier, um, the accuracy goes way down. Um, and so this is the so-called dirty OCR. If you haven't corrected the, um, the OCR, the optical character recognized text, um, then you know, the problem is that, you know, maybe you're searching for rights, but it shows up as, um, you know, rifts in the, in the text. And so you're doing a word search and you just don't find it. Um, and that's really um, one of the biggest challenges for doing any kind of statistical studies of, um, of these corpora, because, you know, it could just be that you're, you're, you're not actually searching what you think you're searching um, and that you're missing huge numbers of things. Um, so those are like the biggest caveats that I guess I would say um, there's other issues that show up like echo has tons of duplicates. And so um, you might say, oh, look, there's this big surge in uh, rights talk in the 1740s. But it turns out that that's just because there were like five editions of Locke's second treatise that were um, republished that year or that decade. Um, so, you know, you have to be really cautious while, while using um, these these tools. Now, what can you do with them? I still think that they're, they're great for giving you kind of orders of magnitude. Um, and something like Google Book Ngram is good for this too. So, you know, remember when, when I was doing more DH stuff, um, I was working with, um, with, with a team on, on French Enlightenment networks and we were we were doing some statistical studies like sort of who was in the correspondence networks and um and one of uh at the time one of my graduate students came back with this beautiful chart and all of the um decimal point you know all of the statistics had decimal points uh i said you know let's let's just have as a rule not to use decimal points because you know, we know our data is is kind of loose anyway and so like when you start adding decimal points it gives us like this aura of scientificity uh, an aura of precision that we just actually really need to dispel. Um, however, you know, when you notice that there's like five times more or 10 times more of something in one category than another, you know, that seems to be significant, right? We maybe, maybe we're still off by quite a lot, but we can deal with, you know, pretty big margins of error if we're looking at these, um, you know, major differences in magnitude. So I do use, Google engrams in in the book, and it's really to show like you know there's this like big rise happening like so for in the in the chapter on the on the French Enlightenment you know there really does seem to be something that's happening in the 1760s and uh, yeah 1760s and 70s that like rights talk really does explode. Um, is it two times more? Is it three times more? You know that doesn't really matter. It's more that this then becomes a um uh, almost like a heuristic tool it's sort of what in statistics they would call exploratory data analysis it's like there seems to be something interesting going on here let's go find out what it might be so rather than using these um, um dh tools to to give us the answers i'm a big advocate of using them to help us ask questions and try and figure out like what's going on here is it just a data issue is it just that my sources the sources in this database are really biased and um, that's why I'm seeing this? Or is it actually something interesting that's happening uh, that I need to really now use you know, my qualitative training as a, as a reader of texts to, to figure out what, what it is that, that's going on here? 
And I think the book does that so excellently. I think it really is a fantastic example for uh, intellectual historians to look at, to see how they can mediate digital humanities and intellectual history for the positive and ask those new questions. Um, so let's let's move further into the book and realize that we're keeping you already in chapter one. <laughs> so um, you move in part one to really explore these various rights regimes um, that you've already mentioned. So you're beginning with a chapter called When Did Rights Become Rights? From the Wars of Religion to the Dawn of the Enlightenment. Um, and here you're working through examples ranging from the Huguenot revolutionaries to the English levelers. You have Hobbes and Locke and Hutchison. Um and I think what you make very apparent in this chapter is how this preservation regime um, that you've, you've already mentioned of the late 18th century had, on the one hand, these very clear roots in much earlier theories, but on the other, was also relatively undeveloped in comparison to the other rights regimes that you bring up. But I'd like to jump a little bit forwards um, to chapter three in particular, as take my prerogative as, as host here, to ask you um, about the, the particular contribution to Enlightenment political discourse made by a group who I am very fond of, that being the physiocrats. Mm. So um, could you give listeners an, an overview of who the physiocrats were for those who are perhaps not familiar with them as a group? And, and also the very specific role that you have uncovered um, in this chapter with regards to the role that they're playing in the rights discourse of the 18th century? Yes, well, I guess we are we are both um, members of the Physiocrat Appreciation Club. Um, <laughs> Not so many of us, but they're, no, they're fantastic. It's, it's, it's a very rarefied club. Um, well, and I think that um, what, one of the reasons I've, I find them so interesting is that um, I feel like there, there's still so much to be gleaned from their contributions to political discourse. Um, so maybe that's sort of how I can segue into you know a very brief introduction of the physiocrats. Um, they they themselves called themselves the economists, and they are still today mostly remembered and studied by um, historians of economic thought. Um, they're sort of the the very you know. Off, sort of off the cuff description of the physiocrats is sort of like they're they're the precursors to Adam Smith, um, and that's typically how they're described in all of the history of you know capitalism literature. Um, so they develop many of the ideas about um, the free circulation of grain, um, and so they're sort of the founders in some respects of you know the free market. Although, as um, as you know, historians have shown that those ideas really go back to the, to the 17th century, bizarrely to the um, to the Jansenists. Um, but uh, they they really sort of try to carve out economics as almost its own discipline, and perhaps that's their their greatest contribution is you know fashioning this discipline. Um, and of course, you know, Adam Smith is is very is early on is you know fascinated by the physiocrats i think at one point he he meant to dedicate um the wealth of nations to francois Quenet, who was the with a doctrinal um fountain head of of physiocratic um thought um and you know their basic insight is that all wealth comes from the land um and that um, this is where their name physiocrats come from. So the, the rule of nature. And so you just need to um, sort of let nature do its thing. Um, and all everything, there's like a natural order, a natural balance uh, between um, 
the in prices and in wages and that it's really you know what we today would sort of recognize as you know the invisible hand you know in, in smith's terms of of market relations um but there they also in, in sort of developing this economic thought they also put forward some really interesting principles of political thought um and and that's the part that I'm so interested in, um, and part of it does come from the fact that it's much less studied than the sort of economic thinking of the physiocrats. Um, and one of the other reasons why they're so appealing, um, they were so appealing to me, um, is as part of this sort of story of well, what happens in the 18th century? Why is it that this um, the preservation regime, the idea that we retain our rights, does end up sort of winning out over its rivals? Um, the physiocrats were incredibly influential. Um, I think uh, you know Michael Sonnenscher had this good line in, in an article on the physiocrats that you know they were so influential that even their opponents ended up sort of adopting their terms. So they really sort of set the debate around uh, many of these questions about uh, the economy. But I think one could one also can um, make that claim about like even their economic op- opponents often ended up adopting the way they talk about rights. Um, so what is their main contribution? Um, so it, I focus a lot on Cunet, um, who's a, a really fascinating and quite unusual figure. So he he comes out of real poverty. Um, I don't think he learns to read until he's 11. He, he has a very, um, he's really self-educated. Um, and so it's a very idiosyncratic um, background. Uh, you know, he's not like Voltaire and many of the other um, uh, philosophes who've sort of, you know, gone through the traditional Jesuit um, college and, and have, you know, a, a pretty identifiable education. Canet is really all over the place. Um, and then he becomes a doctor. He's a surgeon, actually, which is not not as prestigious um, as being um, a real doctor back in the uh, 18th century. Um but he's very successful and he ends up um, being, um, you know, Madame de Pompadour's uh, personal doctor. So she was uh, the, the Louis XV's um, mistress. Um, he's also one of the royal doctors. He's, he's close to Louis XV, who, um, who admires him a lot and, and supports him. So he's really at the center of power um, in um, the mid uh, 18th century. Um, and then builds this school around him of, of other very influential people, the Marquis de Mirabeau being his closest collaborator. But actually many, many of the philosophes are drawn into his um, influence. So I actually do a little bit of, of network analysis just to show how extensive um, the, the overlap was between um, philosophes who were so sort of active in Paris, and, and I sort of use the, the Baron d'Olbach's circle and all of uh, Alan Kors' wonderful work on, on that group um, as a sort of a evidence of, of, you know, being at the heart of the, of the philosophe group, but how many of those were also you know, actively working with Cunet and Mirabeau uh, in promoting physiocratic ideas. Um, so, so there's like a clear circulation, like a social history of ideas here that we can, we can retrace. Um, but, but I think what's so fascinating about Cunet is that because he 
does not have a traditional education, it's not really clear that he's very familiar with um, many of the natural law thinkers of the of the 17th century, let alone anyone who came before. I think he does he does seem to know Hobbes, but rejects him. Um, but he he essentially is um, taking a, a more much more traditional Aristotelian point of view. He he we know he. Did read Aristotle and was very influenced by the politics, um, and then sort of you know updating it a little bit with more modern terms. Um, and this is really important because, in a sense, what he's doing is um, closing the caesura that gets opened, um, you know, in the 17th century in particular. And and Hobbes really separates um, these two parts as much as possible. And this is the caesura between a state of nature and a political society and sort of making these to be absolutely different, you know, phases um, of, of human existence. Um, and Canet just goes back to the more traditional Aristotelian story of a sort of, of a gradual evolution of political society in which there is no sort of big bang moment where society is invented. We're always in society, you know, from the moment you're born, you're in a familial society. Um, families are part of larger groups of, of communities, which have their own social organizations. And you know, the most developed forms of political society are simply, you know, extensions of what we find um, from the very beginning. So, uh, no, it's just the traditional Aristotelian narrative. And there's no social contract. There's no moment where you sort of fall from, go from one to the other. And what this means is that, um, you know, the, the debate over what happens to rights when we enter into political society kind of ceases to even be one for, for Kinesi. It's like, well, what, what could happen to them? We always have rights that, you know, we're never moving from one phase to another. Um, and so I think it's less that he sort of is successful in, arguing against the other two models. Just he sort of reframes the debate in such a way that the other two models or the other two regimes simply don't make sense anymore. Um, and, and I think it, it's interesting because it really takes somebody who is very ill-versed in the history of, of natural law theory to make that move. Like someone like Rousseau, who is probably among the French philosophes who, who is the most knowledgeable about the natural law theory, you know, he ends up replicating the Hobbesian model um, and does not actually you know, end up being one of the intellectual sources for revolutionary theories of rights. You know, with, with Rousseau, it's, it is a kind of Hobbesian story, except with you know, the, the sovereign is the people, um, but the people get to decide collectively which rights we have in a civil society. There, there's not really any carryover from the state of nature. It's, it's a, almost like an alchemical transformation of rights. Um, but Kinet, who like has, I think I found one mention of Hobbes, and so could even be like a secondhand knowledge of Hobbes, it's all just sort of thrown out the window. Um, and, and this therefore makes up for a very strong case of you know no you can only retain rights in 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 political society there's no other option 
And something else that I found just so fascinating in this particular chapter is the focus that you place on translations and textbooks and the role that they did or did not, um, I suppose is more correct, play in the revival of the natural law tradition in France. And you go through really um, fascinating examples of how translations and really translators as, as agents were affecting the dissemination of ideas and texts in the French-speaking world. And, you know, I'm thinking of people like uh, Marc-Antoine Adieu, who I assume listeners might know more from his infamous um, translation of Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, um, which then Smith went on to kind of blame for why he wasn't successful in the continent. But could you just briefly, um, for those at home, kind of uh, give an idea of, of why it's so important to, to look at these um, translations as translations as a kind of um, a intermediary step in, in the history of ideas or, or concepts or, or intellectual history, however we want to define it? Yeah, no, and, and, and thanks for, you know, for highlighting that because it, it is so crucial um, in general, I think. Uh, like I'm actually working on another project right now on the history of, sort of intellectual history of revolution, and it all hinges on translations of Polybius that, you know, nobody really, people have studied, of course, the reception of Polybius, but people who study the history of revolution haven't actually looked at the role of translations in um, putting forward new new terms and concepts. Um, so in the case of, of, um, of rights, especially in the 18th century, um, I think the so it's it's interesting. We, um, you know, most of the people that are I talk about in this book, you know, read Latin and, and therefore could have read um, Pufendorf and Grotius and even earlier authors in, um, you know, in the original language. But, you know, it's interesting. Often um, you'll find in the the Encyclopédie um, they'll they'll refer to the Latin source. But actually, if you if you look closely, you can. And if you do some digital humanity stuff, you can find that they're citing the translation. So it's pretty clear that most people will been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right. As it's written in the digest. <laughs> um, and then we um, cite the English translation. So um, I think what's what's crucial here, though, is that um, so the, the, the most important figure, I'd say, is Jean Barbirac. Um, so Barbirac was um, a professor, um, a, a law professor. Um, he was a a Huguenot. He was at the Lausanne for, for most of his career. Um, and he translates um, both Pufendorf and Grotius, among others, um, into French. Um, now, what's crucial here are a couple of things. One is that he does Pufendorf first. So the, even though Pufendorf was writing you know, much later than Grotius, he's, his sort of reception into French actually sort of happens earlier um, than Grotius. Um, but then what's really crucial is that Barbirac will also provide um, these extensive um, introductory essays that really frame the history of natural law um, in, a, in a very um, detailed and, and you know, fairly uh, ideologically driven fashion. So you know, people might be reading Pufendorf and Grotius, but they're still really getting Barbirac's perspective. Um, he has extensive commentary um, and notes, often very critical. So especially in his Grotius edition, he's often sort of, he'll cite the passages in Pufendorf that might be pushing back on Grotius. Uh, but also it turns out that this is one of the ways in which Locke will be disseminated into France. Um, so the second treatise is translated. I make the claim that it 
actually had a very limited impact in in France in particular. Um, and this also is a bit controversial, but but most of the translations um, seem to be more connected with sort of the Huguenot exile community in the Netherlands. Um, and someone like Voltaire, who does so much to promote Locke in in you know 18th century France, doesn't ever refer to the Second Treatise, and even says some things that don't make sense if uh, if he believed that Locke had published the Second Treatise. Um, so it's a fascinating um, reception story here. But Barbirac's um, footnotes do bring in a lot of Locke um, into his own criticisms of Grotius and, and Pufendorf. Um, so it's a really crucial um, place to um, to look for studying the sort of the, the dissemination of, of of ideas and the transmission. Um, you they also mentioned textbooks, and here I just briefly flag Burla Maki, um, who was a, um, a also a law professor. He was in Geneva, um, and Burla Maki is it's. You know, his book, The Principles of First of, of Natural Right and then of Political Right, um, which come out around the mid-18th century, they would be incredibly influential, actually, even in uh, in the United States. They're, they're translated into English and, um, um, and quickly sort of become part of law school curricula here. Um, but they're they're kind of like a hodgepodge of a lot of the 17th century theory. So so like the most um, critical view on this comes from um, Robert Deraté, who was a great Rousseau scholar, who really thinks that Burlamaki is sort of basically just copy pasting um, a lot of 17th century stuff uh, without attribution either. And some of that could be that these were largely lecture notes, and so you know it might not have been that he was trying to pass this off as his original ideas. Um, Others have you know, tried to show that Biolamaki had had a slightly more um, original view. I tend to find him to be a bit more on the hodgepodge side, and and um, and I get there by showing that you know in terms of these rights regimes, he's really all over the place. You can kind of use him to defend any one of them. Um, though I do think you know ultimately he tends to be a little bit more of a conservative. Um, and indeed, that that was definitely his politics within Geneva. He was aligned with the, the more aristocratic um, party um, in, in the, the Republic of Geneva. Um, but all of this to say is that, yeah, these are incredibly important sources. And this is usually how most people would have um, become be, been familiar with natural law thinkers. So, you know, Grotius and Pufendorf actually do have a pretty big, um, you know, they're, they're cited a lot by, by the French, I mean, often quite critically. Uh, but that is because of Barbirac's um, translations. Should note that you know the English translations of uh, of Grotius and Bar and Pufendorf are, I think both of them are done on the basis of Barbirac's French translations, and they often will translate his notes as well. So there's sort of a double uh, layer here of, of translation. So you move then in part two um, to, to what you call social naturalism in early modern France. And you, you start this section by arguing that to understand 18th century conceptions of natural rights, we have to really retrace the parallel history of the laws of nature and nature's God. Um, and you, you explore this natural history, uh, sorry, this parallel history by first examining the laws of nature and neo-Stoicism and science, and then moving um, to a chapter called Roman Law 
and order from free market ideology to abolitionism. And I found this this latter chapter especially captivating. And I was really convinced um, by your claims that the history of natural law discourses need to be better contextualized against the history of legal reform, which is something that we, we don't do a huge amount of. Um, and there's so much to focus on in, in this chapter, but for the sake of, of time, I, I, I'd like to skip ahead um, to your sections which explore those connections between slavery, empathy, and human rights. And I was wondering if you could just outline to, to listeners some of the ways in which these issues were interacting and why views on rights and liberty were not necessarily lending themselves um, to abolitionism. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot... Um... There's a lot going on here. Um, so, so one of the reasons I, I discuss empathy is because it's sort of at the heart of Lynn Hunt's um, argument in Inventing Human Rights that it was sort of through the cultivation of empathy for those of a lower social status or of a different um, ethnicity that um, human rights came to be extended to all. And she she credits the uh, epistolary novel, especially novels like Clarissa, that sort of bring us into the minds of servants um, and would um, give us, uh, you know, essentially teach us to view others as fellow humans. Now, because I disagree with the sort of premise there that, that before the 18th century, nobody would have applied rights to, to everyone, I just, that's think just factually incorrect. Um, I'm more skeptical of the sort of broader claim she makes. But I also think that that the way that even in the 18th century, people talked about empathy, um, Rousseau and Adam Smith in particular, um, they're pretty clear that it doesn't actually work that way, according to them. Um, you know, for Rousseau, you know, the rich does not have empathy for the poor. You can only have empathy for those um, that you can kind of identify with. Um, and then Smith has his famous um, thought experiment about, you know, all of China could disappear and, you know, we would still be more worried about, you know, the cut on our hands. Um, so I think that we have to be careful about how much of how much work empathy can do in the 18th century. And and, you know, I'm I'm, I'm happy to grant it a certain amount of work. Um, and, and and I think that, you know, Lynn, Lynn's work is, is very always very inspiring um, and and I'm sure that there's a lot that that could be could be done there um, but I think that if you actually sort of go back and trace how the abolitionist discourse developed you you will find a very different story um, so um, I mean most of the abolitionist um, scholarship points to Montesquieu as having this incredible role. Um, so David Brian Davis's um, studies are are crucial here, but it's true that every all the abolitionists will cite Montesquieu over and over again, even though Montesquieu does doesn't actually fully commit to abolitionism. And this is what's so fascinating about him. He kind of goes there and then at the last minute comes up with a kind of weird um, justification for why maybe in some extreme cases like where it's really hot, um, it's still okay to have slavery. But that said, what's um, what's so crucial and fascinating about Montesquieu is is again sort of how he reframes um, the thinking around rights to make slavery just impossible, um, and this does get to Roman law, um, and and I think what's so interesting about Roman law, um, especially in France, um, is that 
you know, we kind of tend to forget it as this other source of natural law thinking. Um, you know, it's again, it's it's not it's, it's not as sexy, right? Because it's not new; it's been there for thousands of years, and and so it's also harder to think with because it's not like um, you know somebody writes a book and then they sort of set the discussion. It's sort of always there. People are studying it and at the university. Um, so how do we sort of integrate Roman law into sort of the the more dynamic part of um, of intellectual history and what I think Montesquieu does is picks up on something that has been brewing from the late 17th century, really. And, and Hobbes and Pufendorf here are sort of crucial in this, um, in this development. And the development is essentially collapsing the difference between the law of nations and natural law. So in Roman law, there are these three categories, civil law, natural law, and law of nations. And and what was so brilliant about the Roman jurists is that they used the law of nations as a kind of corrective to natural law. So in, um, in Roman law, um, in the, according to the law of nature, all, all men, all humans are equal. Um, there is no slavery according to natural law. Um, that's just not uh, possible. However, as time goes on and human communities develop, um, we, we end up going to war with one another. In the context of war, um, prisoners are made. And because it is um, better to be allowed to live as a slave than to be killed as an enemy, slavery becomes permissible according to the law of nations. So this is how the Roman jurists justified slavery. But note that it's really crucial that they start off from the perspective that according to the law of nature, slavery is not legitimate. Um, now, in the late 17th century, this distinction between the law of nature and uh, and the law of nations really starts to collapse. And um, the idea that you could have some things in the law of nations that contradict what's in the law of nature just doesn't seem to make sense anymore. Um, so Pufendorf, you know, it's called of the laws of nature and the laws of nations. I mean, he's really um, suggesting and, and explicitly arguing that the laws of nature are are nothing more than the laws. Sorry, the laws of nations are nothing more than the laws of nature's applied to political communities, and so they can't really anymore have a separate set of principles. And Montesquieu then very brilliantly sort of deconstructs now the whole Roman argument for slavery. Um, so at the beginning of the, the famous uh, book that deals with um, slavery, he, he starts by saying, you know, this, this whole Roman thing doesn't really make any sense. Um, they, they want to separate the two, um, but therefore... Um, but actually, we can't we can't distinguish between the law of nations and the law of nature. And therefore, what the Romans said about slavery is correct. It's illegitimate. You cannot have slaves according to the law of nature. So he actually just literally quotes um, the the digest um, in order to make the case that slavery is illegitimate according to the laws of nature. So it's a sort of like fascinating, almost like intellectual jujitsu, where he's sort of using the the Roman and very you know, canonical Roman case against slavery, um, against the Roman justification for it.
In the final section of the book, you go on then to explore rights and revolutions, the kind of culminations. So this is the rights and revolutions in the American and French context. And you interpret their respective declarations of rights less, and I'll, I'll quote you here, as fraternal twins than as faux amis, um, in which both granted the same natural rights of liberty and property, safety, and so on. But they interpreted the relationship between these rights and constitutional government in radically different ways. Could you just very broadly explain the essence of this fundamental difference and, and how it really came to be? Yeah, so this is um, this is really, I think, the where I was hoping to get um, with the book, um, and and it's engaging on the one hand with um, a lot of the French scholarship on on the Declaration of Rights. So people like Marcel Gaucher, um, who who are quite critical of of the French and and sort of adopt almost a kind of Tocquevillian argument that. The Declaration um, of the Rights was, in many respects, just sort of a continuity of of French absolutism, this um, légicentrisme that they call it, um, that the French just can't get beyond sort of the central control of the state by the by the government. That this is just this like almost um, you know this is in the French DNA. Um, and and the flip side of this is like ah there's a little bit of a rights envy like ah those Americans and those British you know, they they really know how to do rights like they they make their rights strong and they don't say that the law has sort of the final say on everything um, and what I what I disagree with with this view is that the French are the exception and that you know real countries have strong rights. I think it's actually the Americans and the English who are the exceptions here. Um, and and I don't mean um, that they're exceptional like the, due to some great genius of, um, of British, um, uh, of the British, but it's really the very exceptional path that um, law and, um, and legal forms take in England, which is just unlike anything we see on the continent. Um, and I'm, so I'm referring not just to common law, but really to the way in which um, English common law will, thanks to all of the, you know, all the messiness of English 17th century history, really, will take on this very unusual set of criminal procedural rights. Um, so these are, you know, the rights against self-incrimination, um, the rights against uh, warrantless seizures, you know, pretty much everything that we now celebrate in the U.S. Bill of Rights, but that does not come out of the either the Roman law tradition or the natural law tradition, for that matter, but has a lot to do with the specificities of, of English history and um, English law. And it's quite fascinating how, how the Americans, the American colonists, are absolutely clear about this. Um, so you know, if when you read either even the Declaration of Independence or the state declarations that get that get written after 1776, uh, it's like this sort of funny divorce statement where it's like, "I hate you, but you know, I really like your family. <laughs> I want to keep all of the common laws, like the it's the Maryland uh, Declaration that says like we're, we're we're splitting up with you, English. You're very bad. You have a terrible king. But by the way." All English law continues to be operative in the country because you know, that's great. And I think this is one of the reasons why 
it took the American colonists so long to to reach independence because they really valued being English subjects. And a lot of that was that they really valued English law. You know, that's what you see in, say, um, James Otis's um, famous treatise on, you know, the rights of, you know, the, the, the British. Um, it's, it's about English law that, that he's, he's you know, so attached. So, so I think this gives the um, American declarations their very specific um, sort of the, the, the rights talk that you get in America um, is really mostly about English common law. Um, and indeed, by the time of the declaration, they no longer really need natural rights that much anymore. I mean, natural rights allow the Americans to make the claim that they can establish new government according to um, the principles that they choose. But you know, by the time of the of the 1787 Constitution, you know that's moot, and so all that you really see, the, there's no mention of natural rights actually in the in the U.S. Bill of Rights, and you, know, you can kind of read a little bit into the Ninth Amendment, but it's basically gone. Now the French don't have that; they don't have this same. Uh, they don't have common law. They don't have well. I mean, they have some customary law, but they don't have sort of. It's mostly a, a civil law um, country, and they have none of these kind of criminal uh, procedural rights that the English have. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, I, I think it's, it's a little unfair to project this sort of um, absolutist legacy onto the, the, the French revolutionaries. I mean, they clearly would like to have more criminal procedural rights and they will ultimately go on to, uh, to pass you know, criminal justice, um, a new code of, of legislation. But they don't have that um, in 1789. And so when they are saying things like, you know, the law shall determine the limits of you know, a free, a freedom of speech or the law shall determine um, how, how much um, you know, liberty you should have. Um, I don't think that it's this sort of French obsession with the law. It's rather um, that they, they, the law still needs to um, come into being and to state what this is. Now, I'll end just by saying that there is kind of a, I think, a very different legal philosophy here too, which is that um, you know social naturalism, which isn't a term that I've uh, I invented. It comes from other uh, you know historians of 20th century um, free market thought, but I think it works very well for the 18th century. You know, it is this physiocratic idea that if you design the government well and the government is running according to the laws of nature, um, then you know, I don't. As, you know, Bob's your uncle. Everything's going great. You don't really need to have um, this adversarial structure of, of criminal uh, rights uh, that the English have developed because you know, basically the, the whole English model of common law rests upon a deep mistrust of government. Um, it's it's you know the experience of the star chamber. It's the um, you know the ex all of the very different English 17th century history, which doesn't happen in uh, in France, that leads to this sort of sense that we always have to be on your guard against government. You know, like Thomas Paine would say, you know, government is a necessary evil. The physiocrats would not subscribe to that idea at all. Um, so you know they they are approaching, and the French I think are approaching. Um, the idea of rights as being complementary to to laws. There, there shouldn't be this adversarial system in their mind. You should design the state so everything you know is, is a well-oiled machine. Um, now, today we might think of that as kind of a naive view, but you know that's because we too have now been um, 
you know, we, we too have, have, have lost some of our innocence in how we think about the state and the power of the state. And, and probably we're more naturally inclined to be a little disabused of these kinds of notions. But it takes a process of, of, of disaffectation to get there. I think the, the English and the Americans have gotten there earlier due to their different history. Um, and I think that's really what explains why the rights end up being so different in France than they are in the um, American colonies. And just to, to kind of, I guess, follow that line of thinking through that you've just brought up. And just as we, we really wrap things up here, I'm aware that we're running out of time, but I really just want to finally turn to the legacy of the declarations um, uh, in the human rights discourse of the 20th and 21st centuries and the contribution that your work is making to really rethinking um, this heritage. So there are so many teleological accounts out there that see, you know, the Enlightenment as the, the birthplace of rights. But, you know, what do you think that we stand to gain by realigning the history of rights, not just in terms of, of intellectual history and, and rethinking the boundaries of, of Enlightenment thought, but also with regards to, to current day human rights discourses, would you could, can you see a kind of contribution to be made there? So I, I think that um, I, I end up being kind of actually a little pessimistic. I mean, not so much about um, the future of, of human rights and um, and and my pessimism isn't so much that um, this is. A lost cause or a last utopia, uh, to borrow um, Sam Moyne's expression. It's more that I think we're, we're we suffer from a little bit of wishful thinking, and and I think that the so the attempt even to tie the the Universal Declaration just back to the Enlightenment. You know that's an interesting move because it it sort of projects onto the Enlightenment a set of secular values that we're comfortable with. Um, and in so doing, it obscures the fact that even during the Enlightenment, natural law remained a metaphysically grounded discourse. I mean, the physiocrats are very clear on this. I mean, there's it's a theological, a theologically based argument. Um, this only works intellectually if you, in, in a sort of, a metaphysical universe with with a god who has you know is the prime moral mover you know who has who has established the primary set of natural laws um and and i think that what you see um in the in the build up to the universal declaration so i focus a lot on these these leagues of um of human rights the ligue des droits de l'homme in particular the french one um because i think that they've more recently kind of been written out of the history of the Universal Declaration. Um, uh, you know, Sam, again, has really sort of tried to say that they didn't have any, um, didn't make any contribution. Um, he's He's been working more on sort of the, the Christian aspects of this. Um, but I think that the, 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 the these leagues played a central role. They were demanding these declarations already back in the 20s. They were producing drafts. There's a direct link with um, with certain in, individuals, René Cassin in particular. Um, so they they were really crucial. And the French League, you know, went back. They, their charter is the Declaration of the Rights of Man of 1789. So I mean, it's very explicit. They even wanted not so much to have a new 
separate um, declaration, which is what ultimately happened. But just to sort of write a compliment, they wanted, you know, part two, let's update the first declaration of 1789 um, by adding some new rights. Um, and so in their mind, this was very much connected to the um, to the efforts of the uh, of the 18th century. Um, but I think that the the problem I see um, today is that I do think, and, and you know, I, this isn't my um, I, I'm not claiming originality in this argument, but you know, I think what we know about the Universal Declaration is that they they sort of had a whole they really removed the intellectual scaffolding from it. So there's a lot of weight placed, say, on dignity. You know, dignity is now where we get our rights from, um, and I think most conspicuously what disappears is like well where do we get our where do we get our dignity from you know this is a very theological concept um and i mean it also you know there have been of course lots of books written on dignity um but i think that you know basically there's a glaring omission in the universal declaration which is god and i'm not saying this as a as a christian i'm not a christian uh, i'm not i'm saying this as an intellectual historian that um we have Know, removed really the foundation, the traditional foundation for human rights um, from human rights. Now, this doesn't really bother the lawyers, like whatever, we've got this document, it's a legal document, um, people have signed on to it, it's a contract, we don't, we don't really care about the, uh, the origins of it. Um, and, and here I'm actually drawing a lot on Chuck Beitz's great book on the idea of, of human rights. But you know, for philosophers, for historians, you know, those of us who who are sort of more interested in how these discourses evolve and what their what their sort of fundamental legitimacy is, I think that's kind of problematic. Um, and um, I don't have an answer because, um, I mean, you know, the easy answer is to say, well, let's just go back to natural law. And you know, there are um, there's plenty of people, um, you know, Finnis, Robert, uh, Robbie George, who who would like to sort of re, you know, actually uh, Mike Pompeo himself probably our current Secretary of State who just wrapped up a uh, a commission on unalienable rights. You know, lots of people who would like to um, sort of bring the Christian tradition of natural law back into human rights, um, and I I'm personally very opposed to that, but I kind of see their point because. Um, you know, in in a way, human rights is 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 missing um, its foundation, and and so we can we can all just you know agree that it turtles all the way down, and that you know now these things have a legal um, existence that you know is separate from their historical origin. Um, but you know, in terms of philosophical legitimacy, I do think we we need to do um, more of the kind of work that that um, Chuck Bites does in his book um, to you know. Kind of think well. What is the foundation of, of human rights today? Well, on that very powerful point, Dan, we will leave you here. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, the book is on the spirit of rights by Dan Edelstein, published by University of Chicago Press, twenty eighteen. Dan, thank you so much for being on the channel. Thank you so much, Alexander. It's been a great pleasure.